0: You know, this series that uh, Pastor Chad's leading in, Ask Anything, I thought, wow, you're going to put out Ask Anything? Because there's a whole lot of things that are, (laughs) yeah, these are good questions, and the one today I love to talk about. I don't see myself as a great prayer warrior, but I'll say this, I probably say it all the time. I really love Jesus, and spending time with him is the greatest joy next to being with Carla and my family. And so I'm not surprised that Jesus in his earthly ministry found prayer to be so essential and so meaningful and so vital to everything he was and everything he was doing. In fact, when you look through the Bible, the prayer life of Jesus becomes a model for us. Probably about about 40 years ago, I heard a message from a man who came to speak to a bunch of pastors about prayer. And it so impacted me. His name was Howard Hendricks, a professor at uh, Dallas Seminary. And uh, he could talk to pastors like few could talk to pastors. And boy, he got our attention that day about the importance of praying. One of those passages that impacted my life was found in Luke chapter 5. And I'd like to read the context for you. Uh, Jesus is busy in his ministry. It's early on. People are coming from everywhere to be healed. He is exhausted many times. He is worn out physically. Everywhere he goes, crowds of people are lining up with multiple diseases and illnesses and casting out demons. How did Jesus handle all that? Well, here's what Luke records for us. Luke, the doctor, who got much of his information from the people who were closest to Jesus. This is what he wrote in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Father, I want to thank you for the great praise that you have paid to open this door of opportunity for us. None of us avails ourselves of this opportunity as much as we could, or even as much as we probably should. But every time we come can be a powerful moment of connection where we get to know the one who loves us even more and where we can lay the joys and the burdens and requests and everything we carry at your feet. Thank you, God, for keeping that way open for us and always being present and never turning us away. You long to meet with us more than we'll ever long to meet with you. But I pray today you'll help us to understand even more why we would spend the time laying out requests before a sovereign God who knows all things and we'll thank you for what you'll show us today in Jesus name amen over the years in my role as pastor at Golden Hills I had a lot of people from time to time from the church from the community who would come and say things like this I'm thinking of running for public office either local state or national. I'm thinking of running for public office. I think God wants me to run for public office, but I'm not sure that I should because I don't think I have a chance to win. And I would say to them, well, if the first thing you said is true, then the second thing you said doesn't matter. And they would say, what do you mean? And I said, well, if God wants you to run, which is the first thing you said, then the second thing, I can't win, doesn't matter because if God wants you to run, then you must run because winning or losing at that point is irrelevant. For if you decide to obey God only when you think you're going to get the desired outcomes you want, you're not only going to be very frustrated, you're going to end up carrying a great burden and you'll end up being disobedient to God. You know, I found that people often feel the same way about prayer. Well, I know God wants me to pray, and I do sometimes, but I don't see anything changing. I don't see anything happening. So what's the point? God is sovereign. He already knows all things, and he's going to do whatever is best. So how do my prayers make any difference? Why pray? And I tell them, well, if you pray only when you think you're going to see the desired results you're asking for, then you're going to end up very frustrated You're going to end up carrying a great burden, and you're going to end up being disobedient to God. And besides all of that, you're going to miss out on one of the greatest blessings God is offering you. You see, we pray mostly because God asks us to, and the results at that point are totally up to him. We pray because God is sovereign, and he tells us to pray. You know, when Pastor Chad let me know this new series, Asking Anything, Real Talk About Real Questions, I thought, wow, that is a very significant series. And one of the questions, which is a very important and significant question, actually came like this. Prayer seems so simple, we talk to him, we ask, God answers. But when I think about what I'm actually doing, it's like I'm asking him to do something he wouldn't do. If I didn't ask. And when I think about that. It doesn't make sense. Well that's true. If prayer is only about getting God to do something. He otherwise wouldn't do. If we didn't ask him. Then it doesn't make any sense. Why why would you ask God to do anything. He otherwise wouldn't do. If he's sovereign and good. And knows all things. So the issue is. Why pray if God is sovereign. We pray because God is sovereign. We pray just like Jesus did. You see, Jesus is God in human flesh, but he lived out his humanity in a life of prayer. You know, Luke tells us in Luke 5.16 that the disciples most remembered that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The Gospels, all four of them, record 52 specific days of detail in the life, in the whole life of Jesus. 52 specific days of detail. And when you look at those 52 days, what's interesting, that in most of them, he's either going to pray, is praying, or coming back from praying. Howard Hendricks, former preacher and professor at Dallas, used to say prayer to Jesus was not peripheral. It was paramount. Jesus prayed about everything. And God, in his grace, has given us at least 17 prayer occasions in the gospel where we can actually see Jesus praying and what he prayed about and why he was praying. Eleven of those are in the gospel of Luke. And Luke focuses primarily on the humanity of Jesus, and Jesus demonstrates that he knew he could live out his humanity only by praying to his sovereign God and heavenly Father. So when I read about the prayer life of Jesus, who saw prayer as indispensable, I think, what does that say about me? What does that say about you? Jesus prayed because God was sovereign. And so we pray just like Jesus did. The question is, why did Jesus often withdraw to lonely places and pray? There's a lot of very powerful reasons. We have time today. I'm just going to look at three. First, Jesus knew that prayer was the key to maintaining his relationship with God. Jesus knew that prayer was the key to fulfilling the will of God. And Jesus knew that prayer was the key to finding help and strength from God. Jesus knew that prayer was the key to maintaining his relationship with God. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6... Jesus is teaching the crowds, but mostly his disciples. And when he comes to the subject of prayer, this is what he tells them in verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, And pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Communication is the key to any relationship. When I met Carla at men's retreat in Washington State, we struck up a long-distance relationship. Seattle to San Jose, 850 miles. You might be asking, what in the world was she doing at a men's retreat? Her dad was the speaker. She was leading worship. It was the best 25 bucks I ever spent. Anyway, because we had a long-distance relationship, we rode every day, and we called once a week on Saturday night after 11 o'clock when the rates went down. Yes, that's how old we are. They didn't even have internet. So we had to wait Saturday night. We could afford to call and talk. We did it faithfully. Why did we make such an effort to communicate so often? And every time, get together as often as we could. Because our relationship was developing. And communication was the key to maintaining and growing that relationship. And you know what? It still is. The sound of her voice is still the great joy of my life. You see, this is why Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray, and why he taught his disciples to do the same. You see, for Jesus, prayer was the key to maintaining and growing his relationship with his Heavenly Father. So he taught the disciples and the people that prayer wasn't about being seen or being heard or being noticed or making an impression. Prayer primarily was time to avail yourself of an opportunity to get along with a Father who loves you. So he taught them in Matthew 6, verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Don't pray like the hypocrites. You see, the word hypocrite literally means to speak from behind a mask, to pretend to be something you're not, or to pretend to be doing something you're not really doing. Don't pray with any other motive, Jesus said, than to be able to talk to your Father. The hypocrites pray, but it isn't about their relationship with God. They're not concerned, really, with even what God is hearing. They're concerned with what the people are hearing. So they want to be considered godly. They want to be considered spiritual. They want to be esteemed by men. But when you pray, you go into a room, a closet, a quiet place, and you talk to your Father. And He'll hear you. It'll just be the two of you. And He will reward you. And I can assure you there isn't anything that God will give you in that moment of greater reward than to know that... You are being heard by this God who loves you, and you are not being esteemed before men. You are being esteemed before God. Doesn't mean you can't pray out loud or with a group, but when you pray, even in a group, it's like you're talking to no one but God. I remember once being in a prayer group up in Oregon with a guy who was in the room and we were praying in the pastor's office or about eight or ten of us. The guy was praying so quietly, he couldn't even hear him. But you could hear he was saying something. I'll never forget this. One of the other guys spoke up and said to him, Hey, Harry, you know, next time you're praying, can you pray a little louder? We can't hear you. Harry looked at us and he said, With all due respect, I wasn't talking to you. I'll never forget that. <laughs> That's why Jesus said in verse 7, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they're heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when you pray, don't pray mindless catchphrases and meaningless words that you think are going to impress God or impress those around you. I'll never forget the time I was praying with a brand-new Christian with a bunch of elders and church leaders in Oregon again. And this guy begins his prayer like this. I mean, we're praying. The rest of us are praying. We're scraping the universe. We're we're conquering the nations. We're airing out our theology. And he comes around to this guy. I'm going to call him Harry. It's the first prayer meeting I think he was ever in. And I'm thinking, he's going to be really intimidated. Here's what he said. I'll never forget that. Hi, God, this is Harry. I just met you last week. Thank you for saving me. I really appreciate it. Hope to talk to you again soon. The rest of us sat there stunned because we realized in that moment there was a connection made that the rest of us were missing. It wasn't about the words. It was about what he said. From his heart to God. Don't use a bunch of words, Jesus said. Talk to me. I want to hear from you. I want you to tell me how you feel. I want you to tell me what you need. I already know. But I want you to tell me. I want the time with you. Now I was reading a piece by uh, the great Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers. He was a chaplain in World War I and uh, spent a lot of time in North Africa. He was a great preacher, great man of God. He wrote a piece. He said, Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Ask God for what you want. And you cannot ask if you're asking, unless you're asking for a right thing. Your father knows what things you need before you ask him. So you may ask why ask. So that you may get to know him better. We can't inform God of anything. He already knows. But he still wants us to come, just like Jesus did. Times of prayer like this can deepen our enjoyment of God as we learn to enjoy the father's presence the way Jesus does. This is what Jesus wanted for the disciples. That's what he wants for us, and this is why he taught them to pray that way. When I was at Multnomah University, one of the founders of the school, John Mitchell, was one of our prophets. He was 90 years old, one of the godliest men I ever met. When he spoke the word and when he prayed, you felt like you were in God's presence. And he always used to tell us in his old Scottish brogue, he'd stand up there and he'd say, Students, the real benefit of prayer is not what you get when you pray, but it's who you have while you are praying. So even when we ask, when we come with God and lay out our needs, our primary focus is to enjoy the relationship with him. That's why Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And not only to maintain his relationship with God, but Jesus knew that prayer was key to fulfilling the will of God. If you go a little further in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 26, you're coming right out of the Last Supper. Jesus sang a hymn with the disciples that night. If you want to read the words sometimes, it's Psalm 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. It's called the Hallel, and you can read what they were singing that night through the course of the Last Supper. But when they got out to the garden, this is what we read in verse 36, Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Too often, our prayer focus is on what we want rather than what God wants. You know, when our kids were little, it was always fun for me me to come home to Carla and the kids after a long day of ministry, because all they could think about was how the day went for me. So I'd walk in the door, it would sound like this. Hey, Dad, glad you're home. How was your day? Did you get everything done that you hoped? We don't want to play right now. We just want you to have time with Mom to relax and unwind. (laughs) Sound familiar? Of course not. <laughs> Nobody gets greeted like that when they come home with little kids. It'd be more like this. Hi, Daddy. Glad you're home. Joey poked me in the eye today at school, and it really hurts. My bike broke. Can you fix it? Can I have some candy? Dad, do you want to play with the dolls? Do you want to go outside and play football? Dad, can I have a whatever? That's more like how it goes. Little kids can have a tendency to see their dad and mom is there to meet their needs, and some of that's appropriate, and it's necessary. But they can be very self-focused when they're little. But as our kids grow and mature, then their approach should be different. They still have needs and wants, but there should be a shift. Or they want to know more and more about what mom and dad are doing and what they're thinking and what their needs are and how they might be a part of it. Our prayer life with God needs to grow that way. There's nothing wrong when we're first Christians to simply be having a long list of things we'd like God to do or to show us. But over time, as we mature in our relationship with God, our prayers need to begin to change. Jesus didn't pray like a little child focused only on his own needs. He prayed like a faithful son who desired to know and carry out the desires and will of the Father that he loved. That's why in one of the most critical moments of his life and ministry, he earnestly cried out to God, and ask that the Father's will be done. It says in verse 36, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus was in the throes of despair, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. When the Bible says he can sympathize with our weaknesses, that's true more than we know. It wasn't just the physical pain and agony of the cross that was troubling him. He was about to experience for the first time sin. It was my sin he was taking on. And yours. And he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. Luke records in even more detail the depth of the emotional and the physical and the spiritual struggle Jesus went through in the garden. Luke twenty-two verse forty-one. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, "Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours, be done." An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Look at this. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Mark records how he cried out in the midst of that anguish to his father. And one of the most personal cries you'll ever hear from Jesus' lips. Mark 14, verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground And prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he cried out, Abba. It's like crying, Daddy. Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Three times in the midst of that agony. He went back and prayed the same thing. Lord, you can take it away, but I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Jesus, in his humanity, was as weak as any human being. He was tempted in every way, like we are. Yet he was without sin. And yet he found, in the midst of that anguish, the strength to be able to do the will of God by praying that God's will would be done. Jesus lived with a profound understanding and desire to know nothing but the Father's will. Do you remember when Jesus taught the people in that message, which has now come to be called the bread of life discourse, as he's feeding the 5,000 in John 6, verse 35? Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You see, in the garden, you see the perfect humanity of Jesus and the perfect sonship of Jesus and his deity. In his humanity, he asked that God could take away the agony of the cross, the wrath of God, and the taste of sin. But in his deity as an obedient son, he knew that if he was to fulfill the Father's will, which is that none would be lost that God had given him, he would raise him up at the last day, and everyone who believed in him would be saved. Then he knew he had to do the, and bear the agony of the cross, and the separation, and the sin, and all that would be laid upon him. He knew he had to do that, for there was no other. And so he cried out to God in our behalf. Not my will. Yours be done. So when his flesh was weak and the crisis came, he found the strength and the will and the wisdom to do the Father's will by praying. And the greater the temptation to quit, the more he prayed. People, you and I are no different. We are called to do the will of God. Some of that will we would never choose but a perfect, sovereign God who knows all things will put us in things and through things for a greater purpose than we could ever see or even imagine. God never makes a mistake. No suffering is ever wasted. And in those moments when we think you can't endure another day or even understand why God would allow these things or even cause them, Jesus said, the the spirit is willing. I want to do the will of God, but the flesh is weak. So the way we overcome that is by praying. And the stronger the temptation to quit or to give in to our will, the more earnestly we need to come to God and say, not my will, yours be done. And God will give you the strength to get through it. I remember... uh, I was reading a piece by G. Ashton Oldham. He was a bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New York years ago. He said, Prayer is the chief agency and activity whereby men align themselves with God's purpose. Prayer does not consist in battering the walls of heaven for personal benefits or the success of our plans, rather, it is the committing of ourselves for the carrying out of His purposes. It is a telephone call to headquarters for orders. It is not bending God's will to ours, but our will to God's. In prayer, we tap vast reservoirs of spiritual power whereby God can find fuller entrance into the hearts of men that his will may be done. Howard Hendricks used to tell us like this, prayer is not about getting our will done. It's all about getting God's will So how can I know what the will of God is? Well, much of God's will is already revealed right here in the Word. All we need for life, faith, and practice. It is God's will that you know God and you know Jesus, His Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, this Word reveals me. And the closer you get to God in seeking His will for the things He's revealed to be done, then the specifics of our life choices, like who to marry or what car to buy, should I get this house, do I take that job, do we make this move, do we do this thing, Those things can be discerned in those same times of prayer as the Holy Spirit begins to guide the heart that is now knowingly willing to do whatever God reveals. So many times I've wondered in my own life if God has not given me the answer when I asked for it because he knows in my heart I'm not really willing to do it. But when I demonstrate to God that I really desire his will like Jesus did, he can reveal more of what that will is. That's why Paul reminded the Thessalonians that it's God's will that we pray continually. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16. Remember, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus desired to do the will of God above all else. No wonder. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And not only was it the key to maintaining his relationship with God and finding the strength to do the will of God, but Jesus knew that prayer was key to finding help and strength from God. If you go over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus is giving the disciples the parable of the persistent Widow. You know the lady that kept badgering the judge till she got what she wanted? But listen, Listen to what the disciples told Luke that Jesus taught them about this parable. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We are totally dependent upon God for everything. When Carla and I were first married, we served in a church in Beaverton, Oregon, when I was attending school. One Sunday in high school Sunday school, we were teaching on the sovereignty of God and how much we are dependent on him for life and breath and everything else, as Paul said in the Mars Hills message in, in Athens in Acts 17. Life and breath and everything else. One of the high school kids spoke up and said, everything? He said, I, I'm not dependent on God for everything. And I said, name one thing you can do without God besides sinning. And he said, well, just this morning. I woke up, I got out of bed, I got dressed, I came to church. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa!" Back up to the first thing you said. I got up and got out of bed. I said, young man, do you realize if God hadn't granted you breath through the night, you would not wake up? And are you aware that it were not for the strength that God gives you by his grace, you would never get up? We are totally dependent upon God. Every beat of your heart is a gift from him. And he can stop it whenever he chooses. We are dependent upon God for life and breath and everything That's why Paul, or whoever wrote the masterful book of Hebrews, reminded us that we are to seek God at the throne of grace for all of our needs. Remember in Hebrews 4, verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's why Jesus lived out his humanity in prayer at the throne of grace, to find all the grace and help he needed in his life and ministry on earth. That's why he taught that parable Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about what people thought, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that he gets just, she gets justice. So that she won't eventually come and attack me or wear me out. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The point of the parable is not that God is like the reluctant unjust judge who has to be harangued to get an answer. God is the opposite. He's a gracious God who loves us and chose us and provides for us. We're dependent upon him for everything. He's the one who provides all our needs. That's why Jesus told the disciples, you're either praying or you're giving up. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. If the persistence of the widow could change the heart of this selfish, self-focused, unjust judge, God's point is, the God who loves you wants you to keep coming and praying to him day and night. He's listening. He hears you. And when the time is perfect, he will answer you. The real issue is one of faith. That's why it says in verse 8, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus returns, will he still find us believing and praying and seeking him, praising his name and honoring him if we never see another answer? Will he find faith? We live by faith, not by sight. If we don't see another answer to prayer or any more evidence of God, when he returns, will he still find us seeking him like that? Will he still find that we are believing that without faith, it's impossible to please him? Will he still find us believing that he exists? And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Prayer marked every aspect of Jesus' life. He always prayed. He never gave up. He prayed about everything. I wish we had time today to run through just the gospel of Luke for the lessons Jesus would teach us about praying. But I want to cover a few with you. Just look at this. Luke chapter 3. Just go with me. We're going to do a little quick Bible survey. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. The baptism of Jesus. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was what? Praying. Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes on him to empower him for his earthly ministry. When? When he is praying. Or Luke chapter 6, just jump over there. We're going to skip so many. But Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to do what? To pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them who he also designated apostles. Simon, who was called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus was also called Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Where did Jesus get the names of the 12 he was supposed to pick for his earthly ministry? He got them from God. When did he get them from God? When he spent the whole night asking him, who are the 12? God gave him the names, took all night, but God gave it to him, including Judas. Who would end up betraying him. In Luke chapter 9, if you jump over there, verse 16. He's feeding the 5,000. And Luke says in verse 16 taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Man, what a scene. Jesus is standing there, the creator of all things, and he looks to the Father and gives thanks for the food that he created that he's about to multiply for the people. Jesus prayed in that moment, thanking God for what he was about to do. Amazing. A little bit later in Luke chapter 9, the Transfiguration, look at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said all of this, predicting his death and, and telling him that he was going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter John and James with him and went up on a mountain to do what? To pray. And as he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy. What were Peter and the gang doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? The spirit was willing, the flesh was weak, they were sleeping. Jesus brings them up, he's praying on the mountain. What are Peter, James, and John doing? They're sleeping again. He had to wake them up when Moses and Elijah showed up. He took Peter, James, and John with him to pray, and while he's praying, God sends Moses and Elijah to strengthen Jesus for his mission to the cross. All of this was in an answer to his prayer. That's why when you get to Luke chapter 11, we're not surprised to read this in verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. These boys had been raised to pray. They'd been praying their whole life. And yet when they heard Jesus pray again and again and again, they said, Jesus, can you teach us to do that? Do you know in all the Bible that's the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them? They asked him to do many things. It's the only thing I can find that he ever asked, they ever asked him to teach them. Can you teach us to pray like you pray? Anyone ever asked you that? Anyone ever asked me that? Luke 22. Just a couple more. There's so many. Luke 22. They're at the Last Supper. Verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. To sift all of you as wheat but I have prayed for you Simon that your faith may not fail and when you have turned back strengthen your brothers people Satan is always trying to sift God's people so that he gets the wheat and God just gets the chaff Jesus prays that Peter's faith may not fail and he'll turn back and strengthen his brothers by the way if you want to see more of how Jesus prays for you today Read his high priestly prayer in John 17.
1: We already talked
0: about the garden, Luke 22. Jesus prays. He's in the garden. Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him on the reaching, preaching the place. He said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. And he cries out to God, not my will, but yours be done. Satan is making his last attempt in the garden to keep Jesus from the cross by tempting him in the flesh not to do what God's asked him to do. And as we already learned, how does he overcome that? He overcomes the crisis by prayer. Howard Hendricks used to say, Jesus didn't learn prayer in the garden. Prayer had so much marked his life, he knew what to do in the crisis in the garden. Or how about Luke 23? Luke 23. Verses 34 and 46. His first and last words from the cross. His first words, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. His last words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last, verse 46. Jesus' first words from the cross, his last words from the cross are a prayer. Luke 24, you remember on the Emmaus Road, Cleopas and one of the other disciples, they're walking along with Jesus. They don't even know that it's him. They think he's going to be moving on, but they invite him to stay for dinner. You remember what happened? Luke 24, I love this. Luke 24, they invite him to dinner. And it tells us in verse 30, when he was, Luke 24, 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and disappeared from their sight. When did they recognize it was Jesus? When he prayed. <laughs> They'd heard it before. Nobody said, Father, the way Jesus said, Father. When they heard him pray for the meal, this is Jesus. Amazing. Amazing. Luke 24, 50, the last one. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into into heaven. The last impression the disciples have of Jesus is that he's praying over them a blessing as he's taken from them. So what is Jesus doing now that he's in heaven? Hebrews 7. Now there have been many of those priests, verse 23, Hebrews 7, 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely or forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What is Jesus doing in the heavens today? He's interceding. He's praying for you and me. People, one of the most profound, impacting moments in my life was when Howard Hendricks stood up to a room full of pastors and he read that verse from Hebrews 7 about Jesus praying for us today. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, how can it be? To a room full of pastors. How can it be? that the life Christ lived on earth through prayer and the life he lives in heaven through prayer could be the life you now claim he lives in you and yet you do not pray. It does not compute. That entire room was stunned because they knew he was right. And he went on to say, prayer pervaded the Savior's life from beginning to end. He prayed in the ordinary moments and the extraordinary moments. He prayed in the common events of life and the crisis events of life. He prayed in public. He prayed in private. He prayed about everything. Prayer was not peripheral. It was paramount. It was not part of his life. It was his life. It was not something he did as a ritual. It's a relationship he maintained with his heavenly father. The more Christ makes his home in my heart, the more the characteristics of Christ will be seen in my life the chief of which is that I, like Christ, will become a praying person. No wonder the disciples said Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I need to close with this. I was reading a piece by Royal Runyon. He's a pastor at a friend's church in Sealing, Oklahoma. He was telling about a Sunday morning. He heard two guys in the church discussing the direction that my sermons for several weeks have been taking. Apparently, he said, one of the men felt quite satisfied with himself and where he was in his walk with the Lord. And he said, I suppose the pastor will give another altar call next week, calling for further commitment of our lives. I'll sure be glad when he finds something else to talk about. And Royal Runyon said, I heard the other man respond, and it sent me on my way with a song." He said, well, I hope our pastor keeps preaching the deeper walk with the Lord. I want more and more of him. And when I get to heaven, I don't want to have to pull out my driver's license to prove who I am. I want Jesus to recognize me by the sound of my voice. Prayer is all about relationship. Why pray if God is sovereign? We pray because God is sovereign. Just like Jesus did. And Jesus said in 1 John 5 verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, We know that we have what we asked of him. I don't know if you'll even see all the answers in your lifetime, but I'll tell you this. When you pray that way, the book of Revelation says in chapter 5 that those saints standing before the throne are holding golden bowls full of incense that are the prayers of God's people. When you pray like that to God, it becomes part of the incense that's constantly wafting before God's nostrils. And one day he'll pour those bowls out upon the earth and everything prayed in the will of God will be done. Jesus knew the value and blessing and necessity of prayer, which is why he paid a great price so that you and I could come and have that kind of access. And the more we take advantage of the open door he's given, the more you and I are going to now know by experience why it was that Jesus often, withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Father, thank you for a wonderful question about prayer and the sovereignty of God. Thank you that there's so much more we could learn from you on this, but I'm hoping today, God, in these few moments, that your will is done, that your word you wanted spoken is spoken. And that you will help me and all of us to apply these things to our life. To remember in those moments that the key in praying is that we have a relationship with God. That the key in praying is knowing and fulfilling the will of God. And that the key in praying is finding help and strength from God. Jesus, you are a great example in everything. You are still living your life out through us. So what I'm asking is that your will be done and you'll help us more and more to avail ourselves of these precious opportunities not because of what we'll get but because of who we have just like Jesus did. And we'll thank you in your precious name.